Well, good morning. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, and we're going to go to the end of the book. We'll start in verse 6, and we'll go through verse 14. I just want to remind you what we've talked about while we've been in this book. We've called the series Living for What Lasts, because we want to be a people who are devoted to advancing God's kingdom here on earth. And we know that the only thing that lasts will be his kingdom. We're going to be coming into a new series starting next week, and I pray that you would start spending time looking at the book. We're going to be in Genesis. The series will be called The Gospel of Genesis because what I hope you would see is God's tapestry of redemption being unfolded to the people of Israel starting all the way back in Genesis 1.1. And how Genesis is the story that leads us to the Christ. So that's where we're going. Um, so I pray that you start looking at that and with a open hearts and open minds. And the last thing I want to say before we dive in is I'm very grateful for um, the way that Brandon leads in worship. You may not notice from you know passively just singing and worshiping. Y'all y'all do such a great job singing together, but the songs that he chose to lead us in worship are wrapped around every theme in this passage, and Brandon spends a lot of time every week doing that, and I appreciate that very much. So let's pray together, and we'll jump right in. Lord, I pray that as we finish the book, that you would show us how we would finish well in our faith how we are to endure. Lord, I pray if there's a brother or sister in this room that feels weak in their faith right now, I pray that they would be strengthened. Lord, and I pray if someone doesn't know you, that you would illuminate their eyes to your beauty and your love and that they would follow you today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're just going to get right into the what is true statement, and that's, God desi God's desire is that we would walk in holiness, standing firm in the faith until we are united with him in glory. God's desire is that we would walk in holiness, standing firm in the faith until we are united with him in glory. So what do we do with this? Well, in order for us to finish well, we must be humble, sober-minded, watchful, and actively resisting sin. And I pray that you would see how these, all these things are drawn directly from the text. Also, when you're looking for pastors online, you should never go, man, that was so clever. Instead, you should see that the pastor is making the majors of the text the majors of the sermon. He should be as a, a megaphone to the text just saying what it says and applying it to the people. So I just want you to know what to look for because a lot of times we really are drawn towards things that are novel and are interesting and are new, but it should be saying what the text says. So let's look at what, what the Lord is saying to us in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you 
casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your, brother, by, by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Who's doing all that? God is going to do it. To him be the glory, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So let's look at verses um, 6 through 7, and we're going to look at living in humility. So what's going on here is Peter's... I don't think Peter knows that he's writing a second Peter. <laughs> these are the last words that he's, he's sending to these churches spread across the diaspora, across Asia Minor, of how they are to finish well in the faith. He's telling these churches simply what they need to know so that they can live with joy and with peace in all the chaos of this world. If you want joy and peace in this world, you're going to have to obey God's command here. And what is his command? To humble yourself. This is a continuation of last week's conversation about life together and walking in humility. But I really love, my, my favorite picture of humility in all of Scripture is given to us in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in Humility, count others more significant than yourself. So he's defining humility for us, counting others as more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Biblical humility sees others as important. Biblical humility does not neglect your own interest. Like, don't, don't hear the text say what it's not saying, but biblical humility looks towards the interest of others as well. Pride says, I am the center of the universe. I'm the most important person in the room. Pride seeks self-desire and doesn't care who it has to step on to get its way. I, I talk to people all the time and they'll, they'll take scripture and they'll twist it out of pride to make scripture conform to their sinful choice. Humility is a posture of submission. Humility looks towards the interest of others. Biblical humility as it relates to God, I can't overstate this enough, has everything to do with submission. 
Biblical humility as it relates to God has everything to do with submission. In Philippians 2, Jesus is the picture of humility. And Paul goes on to tell us that Jesus was enthroned. He was equal with God. But he submitted to the Father. He chose to become a man. He, he, he chose to submit to the will of the Father, and he humbled himself by becoming a man, and he looked out to the interests of others, and he saw how hopeless and lost the world was without some sort of divine intervention, and he chose humility to the point of death on a cross. Peter, in, in verse 5 from last week's text, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A Christian who is proud is an oxymoron. Pride is a weak man's imitation of strength. Pride is a weak man's imitation of strength. You cannot abide in Christ and walk in a proud spirit. Those things don't come together. Now, don't get me wrong. We all struggle with pride. Pride I think for every human, pride is one of the greatest battles to be fought. So what is the tool for us to fight pride? What is the tool for us to pursue humility? It's to preach the gospel to yourself daily. We, we, we think about preaching the gospel as something necessary to do the lost, but no one is in deeper need of the gospel than the saved. The, the, the gospel doesn't stop when we're saved. The gospel is the thing that, that directs the way that we ha look at everything around us and how we relate to God. So here's why when, if, if we want to, if we're trying to live a life marked by the gospel, the gospel is the death of pride. Here's why. The gospel says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The gospel says that we are incapable of being saved apart from God coming and doing it. The gospel says that we are all sinners who've fallen short of God's glory. The, the, the gospel, the Bible shows us that because of our sins, the only thing we rightfully deserve is death and hell. The truth of our helplessness in the gospel should strip us of all pride. The gospel shows our helplessness and requires us to have complete dependence on God for salvation. Any gospel message that you hear that's not a message that is complete dependence on God, that's some sort of Jesus plus gospel and makes it no gospel at all. Our salvation is all about God, not because we're lovely, not because we're worthy, not because we're good, but because he's lovely, because he's good, and because he has chosen us to, to he's chosen to love us anyway. With that being the case, how can we walk with pride towards someone else, even in their failure, when we know that we are deeply dependent on grace for all things? Or 
How can we have a posture of pride towards God? And nobody ever admits a posture of pride towards God, but this is how you know you have it. Are you unwilling to submit to his commands? Are you very willing to redefine his commands? That's pride, and God opposes the proud. Grace is unmerited favor. I like to say grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's love. But God freely gives it to all who would believe. Humbling ourselves before God looks like us accepting our complete dependence on God for all things. In all things. I think a lot of us like to make it just on the salvation part. All things. We are to humble ourselves, as our text says, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he might exalt you. What are we talking about here? That God's going to exalt us? Humbling ourselves before God? has everything to do about trusting our situations to God and giving, giving him the outcome accord, that, that we would be okay with how it plays out according to his will. Humility is submission to God's plan and his purpose for your life and not taking his word and twisting it to make you feel better about your sinful lifestyle. God was using suffering, the suffering of this church. Like, God didn't do away with suffering in, to the people in Peter, right? I mean, Peter, Peter's writing from a really unique standpoint as well. So, Jesus tells Peter in John 21 that Peter is going to be executed. And the way that he says it, um, John kind of lets us know that how the, the way that the phrase that he used lets us know that's the euphemism for being crucified. Peter knows death and suffering for him is coming because he even pushed back on Jesus and Jesus is like, don't worry about what's, what my plan is. You, you follow me. He's already suffered greatly in the book of Acts. So Peter, Peter's not writing about suffering somehow detached from the idea. The one who walks in humility, it might look like God rescuing you out of the situation, or it might look like God giving you the faith to endure. But either way, we have to be okay. We have to trust that's giving it to him that he's going to provide. The one who walks in humility is promised in verse 6, exaltation. Go back to Christ being our example of walking in humility in Philippians 2.9. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus humbled himself, and the Father exalted him from his place of humility. Humble yourself in obedience and trust God's plan, and he tells us at the right time, he will exalt you. Now, what is this exaltation? 
I think we can confidently say it's talking about the in the end when he brings you, you to him. But I also think this exaltation, maybe it's in this life over your enemies, if you would humble yourself and walk before the Lord and not take things into your own control and in your own way. Maybe God will make them look like fools and bring them to ruin. Maybe your exaltation looks like him winning a, a victory over an illness for you. Or maybe you humble yourself and God does not withdraw the pain from you and you find exaltation in the life to come. But he does promise that he will exalt you. But if you choose to make much of yourself, if you choose in this life to exalt yourself, he promises to humble the proud. He promises to bring you low. If you choose to humble yourself, the Lord says he will exalt you. But thanks be to God that he's graciously sent his son to die on a cross to purchase our pardon. And I want you to know if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, if you would humble yourself and say, God, I can't do it. I'm hopeless. I'm lost. Will you save me? The Bible says that he will save you. Now let's look at verse 7. releasing control to the, to the God who cares. God gives the next logical step in humility, and that's peace. How do we get peace? He's showing us in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. A lot of people struggle with anxiety. I want you to know if you're here and you're like, I feel like I'm the only one in the world who struggles with anxiety. It's not true. Peter assumes that we're all struggling with anxieties. That's why he's writing this. A lot of people struggle with anxiety and it manifests differently. Anxiety for some, it's just crippling. For some, anxiety keeps them from enjoying life the way that they wish they could. Some, they wield their anxiety as a weapon to manipulate the people around them into submission. Allowing anxiety to reign and rule in your life will strip you from the joy and peace that God's promising, but it will also lead to sadness, depression, and broken relationships. Humility requires you to cast your cares and anxieties at the feet of God. Humility requires you to relinquish your grasp on your cares and trust that God cares about them more than you do. It tells us to a God who cares. Cast them to a God who cares. The heart of anxiousness, I believe, is control. And let me show you why. So we're told here to, to cast our anxieties to God. Cast means to throw off. Last week I was watching the NFL and, um, you know, most of the teams that made the playoffs, they kind of knew. A lot of them were given, like, backups a chance because they had already made the playoffs. I was watching this one game, and to protect the guilty, they had this backup in. And 
He may, I don't know that he ever played before. I think they said that it was his first game in the NFL. The, the kid was an athlete. And um, so you could see him, he knew what to do. So he pulls back and um, he, he's, 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 you, can see, you can see his head making the reads. You know how you can see him following guys. And the first guy he saw was wide open. But the dude got greedy and he looked down the field and he, so he pump fakes this first guy and he looks down the field and he, he's about to rip it and he gets smoked by a 300 pound man. He, be, because he was unwilling to let go, he was unwilling to throw the ball, he was picking turf out of his face mask. God isn't calling you to control or solve the things that make you anxious. And when you hang on to them too long, you're going to be smashed by the world. Like that quarterback digging turf out of his face mask. You wonder why you're beat down and you're beat up. It's because you're not living God's way. You're, you're like, all right, God, here you go. Oh, no, it's mine. You're playing tug of war with that thing. You're, we, we, we give it to him like, a, like an offering. We kneel down and we place it on the altar but before we allow the Lord to put his hands on it, we pull it back. Because we really can't trust that God cares for it as much as we do. The heart of anxiety is not willing to give up control. You're told to cast your anxieties to God, to give them up. Not to constantly be playing this tug of war. And like I said, Peter assumes anxiety of all of us. Jesus does too, right? Jesus talks to us about anxiety. He's assuming that we have anxieties and we have cares. Anxiety is a control issue. And we get anxious. I get anxious when, when I feel out of control. I spent a long, long time trying to understand the connection to humility and anxiety this week, and I think I got it. It's control is the opposite of trust. Trust requires acknowledgement that everything is out of our hands, and if it's going to happen, God's going to have to do it, not me. That's humility. That's, that's saying, God, I trust you with it. Control says I'm smart enough, and if I think about it long enough, I can fix it. Or some of us, it's acknowledging that we can't fix it, but we continue to, to dwell on it, and we continue to relive the situation and all the possible outcomes because no one could possibly care about this as much as I do. Control is pride. This was the heart of the first sin. Control, pride, anxiety are all a part of the ancient condition that we call autonomy. That's the de desire to be self-governing. We don't want to leave the outcome of our lives to someone else. Wasn't that the angle that the devil took 
with Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them the opportunity to take control of their situation. The temptation that the devil gave is, don't you want to be like God? Not giving up your anxieties and your cares to God. Essentially, you're saying the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Yes. Desiring to look wise in their own eyes. On some levels, not giving your cares to God is like the first sin because you're desiring to carry the weight and solve something that was never meant for you to carry. All we can do in these anxieties that we have is make the situation worse. Humility says, I can't, but God can. Why does Peter tell us to cast our anxieties to God? Look at verse 7. Because he cares for you. God cares about you more than you care about you. God cares about the sickness of your daughter more than you care about the sickness of your daughter. God cares about your grandparents more than you care about your grandparents. God cares about your bank account more than you care about. God has created the world and he's placed you in it and he loves you because you are his creature. Isn't that what Jesus says? That do the, do the uh, lilies worry about what they're gonna wear? Do the flowers of the field worry about what they're gonna wear? Does the bird worry about what it's going to eat? God provides. God doesn't just care about our spiritual situation because we were helpless. He gave us Jesus. He does care about our, our physical situation. And I think so many of us are overreacting to the health and wealth prosperity movement that we want to act like God doesn't care about our physical situation. Read your Bible. That's just not the case. Now, he doesn't promise it's going to come out like you want it to come out. But he cares. You have a good father in heaven who cares for you. Uh, James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. And you might be hearing like, I'm asking and God is not changing anything. God does not always change it how we want it to be changed. He doesn't always answer by taking the pain away. For the churches that Peter's writing to, God does not always remove the persecution and the suffering that they were facing. It would have been years before the, the massive persecution was removed. But God, what have we said all throughout this book and through the book of Ruth? God works all things out for our good and for his glory. And you can trust God that he's not wasting your suffering. He's working it out some way. Tim Keller, a pastor who wrote a lot about suffering because he experienced a lot of suffering in his life. He passed away a couple of years ago with cancer. He wrote this, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives and how he gives it. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives and how he gives it. That's, that's hard for us to own, isn't it? But that's how good our God is. Humility acknowledges that God is in control. He is powerful enough to do what's necessary. And we can give up control of our situations by casting our cares on him. So let's look at verse 8 now. Resist the devil. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 8 commands us to be sober-minded and watchful. If you're going to be sober-minded and watchful, you have to take captive your emotions. We're commanded uh, in Colossians to take every thought captive. There's nothing wrong with feeling emotions. Like, don't hear me say, like, we have to be some sort of stoic and not feel things. But it is wrong to be ruled by your emotions and respond to every desire and every urge. When I feel overwhelmed, I know I've told you this before, I do something I call naming the emotion. There's a lot of uh, really cool brain science behind it, if you want to look that up. Um, you can find stuff from a guy named uh, Chris Voss. He's got a lot on this. But the idea is by you mirroring that emotion, just by saying it, your brain will start or your spirit will start or the spirit, this guy's not a believer, will start deflecting those emotions. So when I'm stressed, I say out loud what I'm stressed about. I just own the emotion and I keep saying like, I keep telling the truth until the feeling dissipates. For instance, last week, my home almost burned down. Um, we're sitting, we're playing Scrabble, and we could smell some, like, plastic smell. And um, what had happened was the breaker box was failing. And we walk in, and it's in my daughter's room. And we walk in, and I put my hand up to the thing, and it's hot. And I'm scared to death that if I open it, fire is going to come out. So I call a friend of ours in the church. That's an electrician. He shows up, and um, he made sure that there wasn't a, 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 a fire in there. Long story short, the panel failed. The, the breakers were melting. We needed a new panel. It was too dangerous to stay in our house, so he very generously opened his home to us. On the way to their house, I lost it. I, <clears throat> I felt like there was something wrong with our car while I was driving up there, and my truck hasn't ran in four months, and the new house that we just bought's about to burn down, and there's no telling how expensive these things are going to be. And I start telling Jordan, like, just sell the house. Get on Zillow. Find a house. Sell this house. I hate this house. I didn't. Why did we move in this? And I'm just mad. Sell the truck. I don't care that it doesn't work. Sell the truck, and we'll sell the other thing. We're just going to start over. And I'm mad about everything. And I'm just, I'm just overreacting. Finally, I, I realize I'm overreacting. And... I start um, naming the emotions that are contributing to these feelings. And I began to combat the situation by speaking truth because everything else I had said to that point was a lie. And if you create false narratives and you say them out loud and you relive them over and over in your mind and to the people around you, you're going to believe the lie. The truth is, and this is what I had to say out loud, and I had to say it over and over because it didn't get there quickly, that we were blessed to have a friend who worked a whole day, and he got off work. He didn't spend time with his family. Instead, he came to my house and checked this out, and it worked, he worked on it for about three hours. The truth is that we were figuring out my truck, and my truck's about to be fixed. The truth is we had reliable transportation. The truth is that... that 
the guy even told us that he was going to replace the panel for us and he thought he had most of it at work from um, parts that they didn't use in past jobs. The truth is that God provided everything necessary. The truth is that, that the breaker didn't fail two hours later when we were asleep and our house burned down with us in it. The truth is, you see how that changes the scenario? The truth will overcome a lie, but you have to be emotionally cognitive enough to not believe the lie. You, have to, you, you, have, you can feel it, but you have to tell the truth or you're going to believe that God does not care and that God has not provided when the truth is God did provide, didn't he? I needed to be sober-minded. I needed to be self-controlled because I had a daughter in the back seat watching me. And she was verbalizing, trying to reckon what it meant for the breaker panel to fail in her bedroom and what it would have meant had our house caught on fire with her stuff in it, which she loves like humans, right? She loves her little babies. But also what it would have meant for it to fail with us inside. She's dealing with all of her emotions and it requires us to be leaders and to be sober-minded and take captive every thought. People are around us and people are watching. There's no place where you're exempt as a believer from being sober-minded. We are to be sober-minded. We are to be watchful. Why? It tells us, your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why? Again, I always ask, why would this sentence follow log logically? Why would it follow that casting your anxieties to God and walking in humility would be some sort of protection that would lead you to being um, sober-minded and watchful? Because if you're ruled by your anxieties, the devil will use that to devour you and the ones you love. He'll use it to devour you, all the, the love and peace and joy and hopefulness and the happiness that, of the life that, that God promises you in Christ. Therefore, be sober-minded and be watchful. He's telling you where you're vulnerable. None of us are, are the exception here. We are all vulnerable in the place of our pride and in the place of our anxiety. I... Like, I'm not asking you to send me animal videos because I've, I, I watch a lot of animal videos on YouTube. I think that's why the internet was made is for animal videos. And I was watching one last week and this guy, he had this big old flapping piece of meat and it was like, just from observation, I'm gonna call it a third world country. And um, he, it was a lion exhibit and there were these bars about what I would call the, the width of a human body could, could go through them, but not the width of a lion. And this guy was taking this, this slab of meat and he was just taunting it. And you could tell like this might, might, like there was a crowd around and it seems like a trick, like a party favor that he would do. And he was just taking that meat and he was uh, slapping the bars and then he would kind of slap the lion in the face with it. 
uh, what, what's that called? He's, he's about to win a Darwin Award. So the uh, lion stops watching, you can see it, it stops watching the, the, the meat and starts watching him. And the next time he does it, he times it just right, and he grabs him, and um, you can hear the shock of everyone in the crowd, and you can see the fear on his face as the lion pulls in, and you scroll up because you don't want to see what's coming next, right? <laughs> Walking around filled with pride and arrogance and anxiety and fear, we all laughed at the guy teasing the lion, but that's exactly what you're doing. The devil is a roaring lion seeking who he would devour. Peter gives us what the juicy meat is. He gives us what he's going after, pride, anxieties. Walking around filled with these things, you're just teasing the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and all he wants to do is destroy and you're just waving your vulnerabilities in his face. Don't be surprised when he destroys you. He's not a caged killer. He's prowling. He's hunting. He's seeking those to devour. Peter's not writing this to the lost world. Who's he writing this letter to? Believers in the church. Fight and protect yourself by choosing humility, casting your cares to the God who cares about you be it by being sober-minded and watchful. So let's look at our last part just very quickly. Starting in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I should have not chosen to uh, start Genesis next week because that's its, own, that's its own thing. Verse 11, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. First, I assume everybody's got the same question I did. Who is, who are these people in Babylon? Well, um, that's the church in Rome. Peter and John, they use the euphemism of Babylon to talk about the, the, the harlotry and the idolatry and the evilness of Rome. So there's a church in the midst of Rome, and they are sending a, Greek, a, a greeting to these churches, and I believe to John Mark. And John Mark is who he's naming here, and this is who writes the Gospel of Mark. John Mark is with, with Peter. And... Um, Guess who we say, we, we believe that the gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. This is when he would have got that. So that's, that's not uh, textual. That's what we believe from, from background, from things in the background going on. But 
You ever wonder why John Mark wrote the, the Gospel of Mark and the main character is Peter? There you go. Um, Rome is where Peter is executed and where Peter is sending this letter is from. Um, to wrap up Peter's story, he is executed by the Emperor Nero. Um, he and his wife, they're crucified together. Church history tells us that Peter, not thinking himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus, requested to be in an act of humility uh, crucified upside down. Um, maybe. I, I don't have a reason not to believe it, but I want you to understand around Peter in church history, there's a lot of folklore because the Catholics made him later the, the Pope, the first Pope, right? So um, I, don't, I don't know if that really happened or not because generally I don't think executioners like take requests, but that's, that's the, um, the story behind Peter. Peter does know suffering and he knows more suffering because of the words of Christ is coming to him. And he gives us what the tools to fight suffering, and that's to fix your mind on the future. And that's what he did. We will know, church, we're going to know suffering. It's a fact. And to endure suffering, we have to, we must fix our eyes on the future. Peter, he's desiring that we would all finish well, and he tells us in verse 9, resist him, for, that's talking about the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The word resist is not something done passively. It's an action. Now, we're not giving, given tools to resist the devil like swords and arrows and guns, Right? How do we resist the devil? By praise, by being in the word, by prayer. Um, I was listening to a national statistic um, yesterday. The, the average pastor, pastor, when polled, says that they pray, um, the minority prayed 30 minutes to an hour a day the majority prayed less than four minutes a day on average. And I bet that's true of many Christians. We're not resisting the devil by being in the Word and with the Lord for four minutes a day. Amen? We have to arm ourselves ready for war to resist, and we fight by being on our knees and being in the word. Resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. Your suffering is not something that, that, that you're the only one dealing with. Your, your specific anxiety is not specific to you, believe it or not. We are not that special. <laughs> we have believers all over the world in situations very much like ours, in situations very worse than ours, some in situations better than ours. But we are all suffering from one degree or another. And the God who cares about you is calling you to trust him with your suffering. Verse 10 says, And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. This is our only hope in life and death. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who's purchased our pardon to the Father, will one day establish us in glory and all these anxieties, all these sufferings, all these things won't be a thing anymore. And this God who's saying that he will do this tells us that he cares about you, that he loves you, and that he swears by his own name that he will get it done. Therefore, church, we suffer for just a little while Stand firm in your faith because he will exalt you in the time to come and he will establish you in his glory. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you and he will establish you forever and ever in his kingdom. Our God is supreme. He's the supreme ruler forever. And as verse 11 says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. If you will, bow your heads with me.